Okay, i got a question for you here this morning. Can you think of a time that you have felt unwelcomed in your life? A time that you have felt unwelcomed. Hopefully it's not here. <laughs> uh, but I can think of a time. It was when I was in sixth grade. I don't know who feels welcomed in sixth grade. And if you're a sixth grader, um, maybe this story will relate to you. Um, in sixth grade, I had just moved to a new town, which meant I had a new school and I had new friends, or actually no friends. <laughs> um, I wasn't really into sports or girls at this time in my life. Uh, I played a little bit of basketball, but I was terrible at it. Still am. And it was just generally a hard time in my life. The friends that I did develop, uh, I would have them over, and we'd look at our baseball cards. And one time when I went to the bathroom, my friends stole my baseball cards. And this... <laughs> This season of my life, I remember um, coming home one day from school and just complaining to my mom, and I eventually was in tears, crying in my mom's lap because I felt so unwelcomed at the school that I had just joined. She would drive me to school every single day. She would try to encourage me. She would pray for me, um, but I just felt so deflated. I did not belong here. This was not the place for me. It was strange. I didn't like it. I didn't feel known. I didn't feel known. I didn't feel cared for. And I certainly didn't feel welcomed. Maybe you have been in a similar situation. We all desire to want to feel welcomed. We all desire to want to be known, cared for, loved. And I believe the Gospel of Jesus opens that door for us. And as we're walking through the Gospel of Luke, it's startling how often He cares for those who are outcasts. How He cares for those who are the marginalized in society. For those who feel like a fish out of water. For those who are unwelcomed. Well, I thank God that the Gospel is good news, not based on our feelings, our social status, or if you cry in your mommy's lap. In Jesus, we are welcomed. And we have a seat at His table. Jesus welcomes those who are least expected into a new way of life, namely the kingdom of God. Now, let me just give you a bit of a background of where we're at in the Gospel of Luke. Last week, uh, Matt shared a passage where the paralytic was healed. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look with me at Matthew, or sorry, at Luke 5:17. It says, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. So we're reintroduced to the Pharisees, and this opposition to Jesus begins to grow. And if you remember the story of the healing of the paralytic, they're grumbling in their heart about who can forgive sins but God alone. Now look with me down in the next chapter, 6.11. It says, but they, the Pharisees, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And so we have a section of Scripture here where this opposition towards Jesus grows. This grumbling towards Jesus grows from the Pharisees. But amidst the opposition, Jesus is continuing this new manner of life in the kingdom of God. So this morning, I've titled today's message, From Fasting to Fulfillment. 
and that we can be welcomed into this new way of life that Jesus has brought. From fasting to fulfillment. I've got three points for us, following, fasting, and fulfillment. It's eventually going to lead to feasting, but we'll get there at communion. So point number one, following. This is my longest point. Uh, We're going to be in verses 29 through 32 here. And so, right away in verse 27, we've got Levi. He comes on the scene here. He hasn't been described previously in the book of Luke. But he, he comes and he's described as a tax collector who's at his workplace. Now, when we think of tax collector, we can't think of like an IRS agent or a CPA or someone who keeps books. No, it's way worse than that. Okay, I got a little chuckles. Yeah, there we go. Just got to work it a little bit. Tax collectors in that day, they were seen as outcasts but they were also seen as outrageous sinners. They were seen as outcasts because they cheated people. They cheated their fellow uh, Jewish brothers and sisters. Whenever taxes were demanded, they just skimmed a little bit off the top. They demanded just a little bit more, and they would put it in their pocket. They were known, and they were hated. They were not liked, and they certainly were not welcomed. But they were also outrageous sinners, and it goes a little bit deeper than them just cheating people out of money. It goes deeper because of their allegiance to Rome. Now, the Romans had occupied Israel at that time. Caesar was king, and tax collectors who are collecting taxes for this foreign kingdom were seen as enemies to God's people. And so the Pharisees, they hated them. They hated them. And Levi, as this outrageous sinner and outcast, he doesn't really care what people think. But the fact that Jesus calls Levi to himself is striking. Now, this probably isn't the first interaction that Levi has had with Jesus. Uh, Jesus' fame had been growing in the region of Galilee at this point. Uh, His popularity through his healings, um, but also in his opposition from the Pharisees was growing. So Levi, he had probably observed Jesus. And the fact that Jesus calls him is just so striking because it shows that Jesus knows who he calls. Jesus knows who he wants to follow him. And so Levi, he left everything. He called him, he was called out of his tax booth, out of his profession to follow Jesus into a new lifestyle, into a new life, into the kingdom of God. And notice that Jesus simply says, follow me. He doesn't command him to pay back everything he swindled, nor does he say you need to stop sinning. Levi isn't, told, isn't even told to count the costs. Like you've got to really understand what you're giving yourself to. No, Jesus says simply, follow me. And like God in creation who said, let there be light, and there was light in the darkness, when God calls someone to follow Him, there is a new creation dawning. A follower of Jesus is this new creation in the kingdom of God. And so look with me at Levi's response in verse 28. He says, "...and leaving everything, he rose and followed Him." Much like Peter did earlier in the chapter, when he was told that he'd catch men alive, if you remember Aaron's sermon on that. 
And alongside James and John, they left everything and followed Him. But notice what following is not here in this passage. It's not dipping your toes in. It's not investigating the claims of Jesus. And it's not, yeah, let's just try it and see if this works out. To an extent, I really believe Levi has already done some of this. But when Jesus calls someone to be His disciple and follow Him, they're called to put their faith in Christ and everything will be different. It's demonstrated from this wholehearted commitment to our new rabbi and teacher, to our new master and Lord. And it comes with a cost, but it's always worth it. And so Levi's life from this point forward is radically different. It's radically changed in his following his new master. And we see that by him throwing a party for his friends. His friends that he would like to be introduced as well to this master. Luke describes it as a great feast. Levi invites his tax collector's buddy, his tax collector buddies, alongside Jesus and his disciples. We're not really sure if the Pharisees and the scribes had an invitation to this party, but we know that they were present. And also present was their opposition and their grumbling. They weren't so concerned that there was a party, but they were concerned more with who was invited to this party. In verse 29, Luke describes for us the guest list, tax collectors and others. Definitely Jews, as Levi, Jesus, and his disciples, but most likely also Roman Gentiles, other tax collectors and friends of Levi. But in verse 30, it's almost as if you can hear the tone of the Pharisees when they ask Jesus' disciples this question. Why do, you eat with, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They don't like Levi. They don't like his friends. They don't like Jesus. And they don't like Jesus' friends. Their tone is condescending, but I think it's also revealing of what's going on in their heart. And it begs the question, why? Why are they opposed to this? Well, let me just remind you that the Pharisees, they were very meticulous and methodical with keeping God's law. They were very meticulous with their strict dietary restrictions. They knew that the Messiah was coming. And in order for the Messiah to come, the kingdom of Israel had to be pure. And so they wanted to demonstrate this purity that was needed to the rest of the fellow Jews around them as they led them with strict dietary laws. They needed to make sure that the meat that they ate was drained of blood in proper accordance with the law. And they knew that the people at this party were not doing these things. They had no regard for this. And therefore, they characterized them as tax collectors and sinners. So eating around a table with sinners, both Jews and Gentiles, they were seen as unclean. They were seen as unholy. They were seen as unwelcome. The Pharisees already have their disdained, disdain on Jesus because in the previous passage, He claimed that He had the authority to forgive sins. Something that only God can do. 
And now they're critical of who they're sharing a table with. In their mind, it's like oil and water. It just doesn't mix. Or does it? Even though the Pharisees didn't ask Jesus this question directly, why the disciples eat with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus decided to answer their question directly. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is just brilliant. It's kind of simple, but I would say it's brilliant. Because when someone goes to the doctor, they go because something is wrong with them. (laughs) They see their need, and they need help. And they go and seek it. They can't figure out how to, quote-unquote, heal themselves. Some of the most needy times in my life is when my kids have been sick. When they have needed a physician. When my son Cortland was four months old, I had to take him to urgent care. We were down in the Dallas area, and he had a bit of a cough. And Mama, she was overwhelmed, and she gave me the look. And I said, okay, I will take him. So we get to urgent care, and Cortland's oxygen levels were down in the 80s. Now, if, you don't, if you're not familiar what normal oxygen levels are for infants, it should be 95 to 100. So there was a bit of a concern here. The nurse said, I'm sorry, but there's nothing that we can do for you here. And immediately my heart sinks, thoughts swirl, and I pray, Lord, help. I need help right now. And so the nurse proceeded to recommend going to the children's hospital. And I said, okay, that sounds good. And she said, but there's one problem. We're not going to let you leave here with this guy in your own car. And in fact, there's an ambulance on the way because they needed to transfer Cortland while he was on oxygen. It was so low. (laughs) So, in this moment of desperation, crying out to God in my need for help, God answered my prayers. (laughs) The expensive ambulance ride was worth it. Um... And the care that we received from the physicians while we were at the children's hospital, I thank God. It was the grace of God in flesh. Wasn't planning on this. Maybe shouldn't have shared this story. (laughs) The bedside manner of the physician comforted us, cared for us, helped us in our time of need. We were actually down in Texas for my sister's wedding. My wife was the matron of honor. And the four days that we were in the hospital, it was unfortunate. We thought we weren't going to make the wedding. And Michelle wasn't going to be able to give her speech. But by God's grace, we got released from the hospital an hour before the ceremony was supposed to begin. And Michelle rushed Cortland and herself to the wedding. And it was all good. And Cortland's alive here today, and his breathing is good. And we thank God that in that moment, he met us in our time of need. And it is in those moments that God does care for us, that God does extend his grace for us, and God does welcome us in. 
And so it begs the question, do you see your need for this physician here this morning? Sickness has infected all of us. It's called sin. There is no cure for this disease. There is no vaccine for this virus. There is no advancement in medicine or investment that you can make that will give us the hope. No, the cure for this sickness is a person. The cure for this sickness is in the great physician where our hope is found, Jesus Christ. Jesus says that He did not come for the righteous, the people like the Pharisees who didn't see their need. Jesus came for the sick sinners who know they need a doctor. Who know they need forgiveness for their sins. And maybe He's calling you today. Maybe He's showing you your need for this physician. And maybe He's calling you to follow Him in faith and to leave everything behind and follow Him. Jesus has come so that we would follow Him not just once, but all throughout our lives in humble dependence upon Him. And that leads us to our second point on fasting. Fasting, we're in uh, verses 33-35 through here. The Pharisees, they now question Jesus directly as a critique to how His disciples' lifestyle is not lining up to their disciples' lifestyles. He says that there is something different with Jesus' disciples compared to the disciples of the Pharisees and John the Baptist. And it has to do with fasting and prayer, but predominantly fasting. He says fasting, well, let's, let's read it here. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayer, as do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Why is that, Jesus? Maybe it's a little bit more condescending than that. Well, fasting in the Old Testament, let me give you just a little bit of background. It was practiced in various ways. In a technical sense, fasting was only commanded one day of year, one day of the year at the Day of Atonement. But fasting was also practiced as a sign of mourning. It was practiced in times of national disaster or calamity. And it was also done as a sign of repentance from sin. And it was a way in which the Jews would abstain from food and drink so that they would commune with God in dependence to Him. However, fasting became more prominent as an outward expression during the exile of God's people. During the Babylonian exile, there was no temple. They could not worship. They could not offer sacrifices for sin. And so they began to atone for their sin by their fasting. This was something that the Old Testament prophets rejected and rebuked. We see that in Zechariah chapter 7. But this, con- this tradition continued from the exile all the way to the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And as the religious leaders, they were meticulous in fasting but they were also meticulous in making sure everyone knew that they were fasting through misfiguring their face, through letting them know as they walked through the temple courts that they fast twice a week. So in another condescending question here, they want to know why Jesus' disciples are not marked as they are. 
why they don't fast, but rather, why do Jesus' disciples eat and drink? Well, later on in Luke, Jesus describes Himself as the Son of Man who has come eating and drinking. This is how Jesus came, eating and drinking. Son of Man, it's a reference to Daniel 7 in the Old Testament where the One who comes before God receives authority over the nations to judge with this authority and set up the kingdom of God. But notice how Jesus comes. Does He come with a legion of angels? A cloud with fire? Blazing in glory? No. He comes eating and drinking, and so do His disciples. He does this so much that Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. So the Pharisees, in asking this question, it shows not only their misunderstanding, but it shows their spiritual blindness. A blindness that only God could restore. And I love Jesus' response here. He says, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Jesus' response to the Pharisees here is veiled. But I think the original readers of Luke's Gospel, they would have known right away what he's talking about. The wedding guests, they're Jesus' disciples. The bridegroom, we don't really use that language today, it's just the groom, the groom of the bride, that's Jesus. And the days will come in the not-too-distant future when the bridegroom is taken away, Jesus' departure and death. And in those days, those days of mourning, they will fast. They will want to commune with God. And Jesus' wisdom here The disciples don't fast now because there's no need to mourn. They're with God. This is how Jesus has instructed them to live. But the day will come when He is not with them, but rather He is taken from them. Jesus is hinting at His death here that He will be taken by force, falsely accused as a criminal, and put to death for crimes He did not commit. But there's a great irony here as well. Even though Jesus would be taken from His disciples, He would use it in the grand plan of redemption as He decides to lay down His life for His bride. He would demonstrate His great love for the bride at great cost to Himself by dying for His bride. He would welcome those who are least expected, who are least welcomed. He would provide a seat at the table for those who were once God's enemies. But the Pharisees, they don't understand this. And His disciples didn't really understand this now, nor did they really after His death, but they would fast and mourn then. And the story doesn't end there. Their mourning would be turned to joy on the day of the resurrection. But He says, those days in which He will die, full of mourning, full of fasting. I think it's worth noting here for us today, fasting. Jesus has come back. He has risen from the dead. But if you remember, He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And He is coming back again. He will come back. And so for us as Jesus' followers and His disciples, we're called to fast. But it's not to 
earn favor with God. It's not to atone for our sin as the Pharisees would be doing. But no, it's in humble dependence upon God. Jesus models this for us. When He was in the wilderness, He fasted for 40 days. He instructs His disciples on the Sermon on the Mount not to disfigure our face like the Pharisees would in a public piety display of pompous hypocrisy. Jesus calls us to fast in secret, to fast in our hearts as humble dependence upon Him. So if you are going through something hard in your life, this is a perfect time to fast. You can fast from food or drink, or you can fast from something that's distracting you from communion with God. For me, it's often my phone. I don't have it with me. I'm fasting from it. (laughs) It's upstairs in my office. Phone is the biggest distraction for me in my life that causes me to be distracted from communion with God. I try to touch my Bible in the morning before I touch my phone in the morning. But whatever it is for you, Netflix, your iPhone, technology, but maybe it's food, maybe it's drink. Fasting is a great practice that we are called to. And we worship Him in fasting. But this fasting is just a microcosm of the greater fulfillment that Jesus has ushered in and accomplished through His life, death, and resurrection as we wait for Him. This leads us to our third point this morning, fulfillment, verses 36-39. through And He gives us a parable here. This is the first parable that we see in Luke. And let me just speak a little bit to the purpose of parables in the Gospels. Uh, This was described for me recently. Parables are designed to reveal things about the kingdom of God, but they're also described to conceal things about the kingdom of God. If you remember, Jesus said in the parable of the sower, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. For those who have ears, he reveals. For those who do not have ears, Parables are given to conceal the secrets of the kingdom of God. So we see Jesus explaining to his opponents on why his disciples do not fast by giving this parable, this twofold parable in garments and wine. Garments and wine. Sounds like a winery that maybe sells used clothes. Maybe a new ministry name for our middle school. Garments and wine. Sixth graders will really be welcome then. Okay, so garments. He explains that no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old. For if he does, he will tear the new, and the new will not match the old. Essentially, what he's saying here is that both will be worthless, useless. And then with the wine, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins are destroyed. Interesting language here. For the wine and the wineskins, if you didn't know this, back in Jesus' day, they didn't have wonderful boxed wine. They also didn't have glass bottles, but they actually had bottles that were made of leather hides. Literally, skins. 
And so, when wine was put into these skins, over time it would ferment and begin to expand slowly. And so Jesus saying that if you take an old skin that has been expanded and you put new wine and fill it up, it will continue to ferment and expand and eventually it will break and burst. And the wine, which is why you put it in the skin, it's destroyed, ruined, lost, worthless. So, what does it mean though? Why does Jesus give this parable? Well, he says in verse 38, new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. The metaphor that he's talking about here speaks to the kingdom of God that's brought in through Jesus. The old way of relating with God cannot be mixed with the new way that Jesus has ushered in. The old way or the old covenant through Moses, it's obsolete. It's useless. It's worthless. No longer would fasting be necessary as a means to atone for sin. No longer would the blood of bulls and goats fulfill the demands of God. And no longer would the dietary restrictions of the law make oneself holy. Jesus doesn't reject the purity laws of Leviticus because they were wrong. No, they're rejected here because they are fulfilled in Jesus. The sacrificial system pointed to a need for a holy people. Sinners could not be in the presence of God. But because of Jesus, the One who will atone for sin, baptize with the Holy Spirit, and write God's law on our hearts, He is the One who makes us holy. He is the One who has died for us. He is the One who, even though because of our sin we can't come in, Jesus has provided a way for us to come into the presence of God. But we don't mix the old system with the new. We can't continue to adhere to the ceremonial laws. We'll see you next week about the Sabbath. All of these things are fulfilled in Christ. I love what Paul says in Galatians 2.21. Everyone knows Galatians 2.20, but 2.21, he said, for if righteousness were obtained by works of the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Verse 39 here in our passage, it's a bit of a condemnation to the Pharisees. They didn't see this new wine that Jesus brought in as good. In their spiritual blindness, they preferred old wine. Their old ways in relating with God. Their old wine skins through manufactured purity and pompous piety. But Jesus came to enact grace on His people. And Jesus is the sweet wine that we can enjoy as followers of Him and that we get to share with others. We get to see, we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is He or she who takes refuge in Him. So in my study this week, I found this comparison list pretty helpful. It says new doesn't mix with the old. Gracious rather than religious. Inclusive rather than exclusive. Welcoming rather than unwelcoming. Feasting rather than fasting. Rejoicing rather than grumbling. Recognizing need rather than self-righteous. Finds hope in our Savior rather than rejecting the Savior. These two lists, the old, religious, exclusive, unwelcoming, fasting, grumbling, self-righteous, rejecting, 
the new. Gracious, inclusive, welcoming, feasting, rejoicing, needy, finds hope. Do you want to live as someone who belongs to the new way? I sure do. And I can in Christ. My prayer and my hope is that we, as the Crossing Church, are marked by the grace of God. Shown to us through Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Covenant. That we would be a people marked by welcoming others as we have been welcomed. That we, through feasts, through eating and drinking, in our life groups, in our homes, that this would be a method for ministry. That we would linger a little bit longer around the table and teach people things about Jesus. That we would rejoice at sinners who were once enemies, but now are welcomed into the kingdom of God and changed by God's grace forever. So as I felt unwelcomed as a lowly sixth grader about 25 years ago, about 15 years ago, I got invited to a Bible study through a teammate on the hockey team. Now, as I'm walking into this Bible study, I had these immediate fear feelings. I was overwhelmed. My mom wasn't present, so I couldn't run to her and cry in her lap. And I said, these guys are not going to welcome me. These guys are going to reject me, actually. I'm a pot-smoking hippie hockey player. What do they want to do with me? Well, it was that very day that I got a seat at the table, that they began to feed me pancakes, and shortly after that, that we opened up the Scriptures, and I began to see a reverence for God that I had never seen before. That I began to see a desire to want to know God and be dependent upon Him, as well as a welcoming grace. God used that in my life to welcome me into the Kingdom of God. Around a table, eating and drinking, and learning about Jesus. Let us use our tables to welcome folks in. Let us introduce people to the community of God by eating and drinking with them. How can you use a simple meal to introduce someone to Jesus? If you eat three meals a day, sometimes I eat four, still got my metabolism, on average, three meals a day, you got 21 opportunities to share a meal with someone in the community and on mission. This was Jesus' method. And amidst opposition, He pressed on and brought in this new kingdom, this new way to relate to God. If this is our Master's mission, let it be our mission as well. And let us use our tables and eating and drinking as a tool to introduce people to the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this passage. We thank You for Your Word that's demonstrated in power. God, we ask just that You would use the Crossing Church as You have in so many years that we would be marked by grace in the context of community. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who might be here this morning that are questioning following You, that are investigating these things. Lord, would they know that this is a safe place to ask questions, to uh, wonder more about who You are. But Lord, if You are calling someone to Yourself, much as You called Levi to Yourself, Lord, I pray that they would rise, leave everything, and follow You. You are worthy to be trusted. You are worthy to be praised. And Jesus, we thank You for fulfilling the things that we could never fulfill in ourselves. And we thank You that You are 
the one who meets us in our greatest need, not just when we're entered into the kingdom, but all the way until we see you face to face. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.